We're moving through the book of James at a fairly rapid pace, and I would just reiterate to you the value of doing this in the context of other people. I just heard this past week in one of the groups that I'm in, someone shared an insight as far as how to apply it that I would have never even thought about uh, before. And I think, wow, that is a great way to actually uh, do what um, God's Word says to us. And I trust that that will happen all over the place. That's why God puts us together in one another's lives, is to be connected with each other and learning together about things. So I would just encourage you, if you're not in a smaller group yet, I would urge you to um, um, uh, find your way to one of those, as there's great benefit in it. The themes of James we've hit, there are many of them. Uh, we uh, Last, uh, two weeks ago, where we were made aware of the incredible ability of perseverance really to be a workhorse for us in causing us to grow up into Christ-likeness. The, the power of trials and the workhorse of perseverance and endurance in creating wholeness and this invitation for us to grab onto that, for us to um, handle endurance and for us to encourage our kids and our friends that are next to us to just embrace that trial and, uh, and, and live in the context of perseverance because it actually does work for us. And then last week we talked about wealth. James addresses it and there are a variety of kinds of wealth. And we discovered here that the secret of enduring wealth is actually deepening worship. It is worship actually that keeps us from desires that disappoint, from those, those, those uh, 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 desires to grasp and hang on to stuff that cannot last and will not satisfy. How do we protect ourselves from that? Well, the secret is to be characterized by deepening worship. And we need to pay attention to that. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Weight of Glory, he says, you know, we, we get our perspective all off so wrong so many times. He says this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So oftentimes we get distracted by these small things that disappoint us when God has this big life and and it's characterized by worship for us. And so for us to say, God, teach me, guide me. Don't let me be distracted. Let me, let me desire you above all things and the richness that comes from that. So this morning we continue on, and we're in verse 19. But I'd like to pray as we approach this section of the book of James. Lord, I've just been struck this week by how much is in They're just these verses that we just read. Uh, and there are multiple ways that we could go this morning with this. And I pray, Lord, that you would use the words that um, I uh, spend time uh, focusing um, attention on. And that through the power of your spirit, you would do even more than that. God, that you would customize your word in each of our lives in such a way that we will walk away from here knowing that we've heard from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had an opportunity to be able to talk to a young man just last week who was in the business of buying and selling used cars. Not your normal used cars, a particular type of used cars. He would buy and sell 1965 Shelby Mustangs. And if you wonder what one of them looks like, there's one right there. And uh, he, he um, uh, it's, it's quite a deal. There's actually a book out with, I think, the 500 plus Shelby Mustangs in the United States. 
And he travels all over the United States just trying to convince someone to sell one. A Shelby Mustang starts at about $200,000 and goes to about $500,000 and beyond. So if any of you have one in your garage and would take a 20 for it, I mean, we're talking, we're talking about treasures, really, right? Works of art rather than uh, transportation. And uh, he went to visit some guy down in the south, uh, southeast United States, and he had a Shelby Mustang. He came uh, and he looked at it. The guy said he was willing to sell it. And he looked it over, knowing everything about Shelby's, and just, yeah, this looks like it's great in great shape. And just before he paid the guy, hundreds of thousand dollars for a car, he just said, you know what, I haven't checked one thing. And he got underneath the undercarriage and he noticed that there were not these cutout slots in the frame, two cutout slots in a frame that nobody ever sees weren't there, which meant it wasn't really a Shelby. It wasn't the genuine article, it was a pretender, it was a clone. Isn't that something? See, he, he knew what he needed to know in order to know what was authentic and what wasn't. And it would be critical for him to know the difference between the two. And in the book of James, God wants us, through James' letter to those he wrote to, to know the difference between what is authentic and what is inauthentic when it comes to faith. Because there are pretenders out there. There are clones of faith that may look just like the genuine article, but when you look closely, they're really not at all. And when we look at faith, God wants us to know what authentic faith looks like because we want to know that. How do I know whether I've embraced authentic faith or not? And in the book of James, James says, well, this is what one of the key indicators are. It will be relevant in your life. In fact, he says it just in, 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 in remarkably uh, clear ways in chapter 2, verse 24, where he says this. In verse 14, I mean, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? He says, you know what? Authentic faith is a faith made up of action. In fact, if we were to summarize the book of James, it is this, authentic faith changes everything. Authentic faith changes everything. We can even look at these, first, these three paragraphs that we read this morning at the end of chapter one, and we can lay them out, and you see the structure of them. The first part of it is this, this imperative to listen with humility rather than speak with anger. We go to the second paragraph, and we see this invitation to hear the words of God and the words that he has for you, but not only hear them, but act on them as well. And then we get to the third paragraph, and there is this imperative to care for people in distress in order to protect yourself from being polluted. Isn't that an interesting connection? Care for people in distress in order that your life might not be polluted. So let's walk through these and look for the indicators of what authentic faith looks like this morning. The first paragraph we get to is, starts out very clearly, and it talks about this longing for us to have a faith that saves us. That's what it says in verse 21. There's a, there's a faith that can be planted in our lives, and it actually will save us. It's saving faith. And literally in the Greek, the word says, will save your souls. And we'll get to what that looks like in a little bit. But it is 
It is about this faith that is authentic enough that it actually is transformative. So what does that faith look like? The first thing we learn is this. The evidence of faith is a righteous life. The evidence of faith is a righteous life. We see this in verse 20 in reference to human anger. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Righteousness is the focus here. I know it, 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 what grabs our attention, first of all, is anger. Perhaps some of those who have just really struggled with anger would say, it's all about anger, but look carefully at what the text is about. I mean, there are these great reminders that said, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But the fresh truth in this passage isn't, don't be angry. Everybody that was listening to this would have heard it. It was a part of the wisdom literature of the day. You go to the book of Proverbs and you see the, the, the imperative not to be an angry person. Jesus spoke about not being an angry person. And, and other wisdom literatures of the day. It's not like this was the brand new insight that James was bringing to us. This isn't primarily about let's not be angry people. It's about let's live a life that produces the righteousness that God desires. It's a little bit like this. You know, if you're, you know, mom says to me, Mark, I want you to be home for dinner tonight. Don't be late. Now, how many times did I hear don't be late in my life, right? And, and that's good advice. Don't be late because I'm making your favorite meal for dinner tonight. Oh, I get it. You see what I would be listening to? Because I'm making your favorite meal tonight. That, that's what I'm paying attention to when my mom says don't be late. I know that don't be late. But she's letting me know that there's a connection between your favorite dinner and don't be late. But what matters to me is the favorite dinner. And you see the same thing in this passage. Don't be angry because, and there's a connection between anger and living the righteous life that God desires. You see, when I'm thinking about, oh, mom's saying there's a great meal for me tonight if I get home on time, James wants, wants to think about, Wow, there's a righteous life available for me. Do you see? That's the point James wants to make. Do you want it? How about this? It's better than mom's best, uh, uh, best roast. It's a righteous life. Anybody want it? <laughs> and we've seen what a righteous life looks like in this passage. We've heard about it already. To be mature and to be complete and not be lacking anything. It's a sense of living a life that is a big life and a life that is characterized by contentment and joy and compassion. We're going to see it spell itself out as we go through the book of James. That's what God is saying. Do you want it? He wants it for you. Would you like it for yourself, the, the, the righteous life? Now, anger matters in this because the practice of human anger doesn't bring about the righteous life of God. But the point made is that our objective should be the righteous life of God. So, yes, sin does matter. And that's why he says, resist it. Refuse it. We talked about this last week when we looked at um, temptation in verses 13 and following. So, so resist it. In verse 21, he's using another picture. He's saying to get rid of it, essentially to strip it off. That word was actually used to the removal of clothing, of dirty clothes from a person's body. Get that dirt off of you. 
In fact, this was written to a Jewish audience, and perhaps they were familiar with the story in Zechariah chapter 3, when the priests would remove their dirty clothes, and they were given clean white robes as a result of it. So that's what James is saying to us. Get rid of, take the dirty clothes off so that you can wear the clean ones. The dirty clothes get in the way of a righteous life. So he wants us to pay attention to whatever gets in the way of a righteous life. And what is it for you? What is the sin that so easily besets you? Here, there's a caution in regards to anger because when a person is angry, it retards the willingness and ability to listen. And he's going to talk about listen very ne- right next. You know, you get angry, you're not going to listen. And listening is going to be really important. Let me talk about it. But there are so many other ways that we can, we can uh, wear the dirty clothes that get in the way of us being the righteous people that God wants, mature and complete. So it's really important for us to, to record that. Perhaps it might be easier for you if you would go back to another earlier time in your life. I, what was it like when you were in college? What was the stuff that got in the way? What was the sin that so easily beset you, that, that messed you up and got in the way of what you wanted for yourself and God wanted for you as well? What was it like when you first started your career? What was the thing that got in the way of you living out a righteous life? And what is it today? What are those things that encumber us, that don't allow us to live the way God wanted us? See, God wants us to pay attention, though, to those things. He actually wants us to get rid of those things, not just simply so that we get really good at sin management, but so that we gain a life that we most want. Dallas Willard talks about the danger of the gospel of sin management. It's this, it's this uh, sense that we have, I think, sometimes as people who are trying really hard to be Christians, to repress our desires or our impulses, to, to manage them somehow. And it's important for us to identify them, but to merely manage or repress is not the objective. If my life is simply a life of trying to manage sinful impulses, my life will be a small life. That's what Mark Laberton was talking about in that quote from a couple of weeks ago from the book Called. He said, as a young person, I thought that's what it was, just these teeny tiny lives. What was he looking at? A whole bunch of people trying to manage sin to stop from doing it. Rather than an invitation into something that is more than that. It is actually a seed that God plants in the life of a person receptive to it that grows and bears fruit. That's exactly what James is talking about. The humility to accept the word planted in you which can save you. You see, you see God says, if, if, if you can be aware of the things that can destroy you and uh, then give to me the, 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 the ability to transform you, then you're headed towards a life of righteousness, maturity, completion, everything you need. It's planted. Scholars have said it's the rightful return of something that everyone needs but have, but have lost apart from the invitation of Jesus Christ into their lives. So this is a decision we talk about 
as Christians, and we invite people into, give your life to the Lord. Let him come in and transform it. He not only wants to forgive you for your sins, but he wants to empower you for newness of life. It's a seed that gets planted inside and it grows. It grows because it's his. You've heard this example perhaps before of a a person who uh, plants a bunch of fruit trees uh, when spring comes, doesn't go out and berate the fruit trees and yell at them and say, okay, you guys, bear fruit now. It's not how it happens. Because someone's yelling or insisting, it happens because a seed was planted and the most natural thing to happen is when it's taken care of is for it to bear fruit. And so God says, implant the seed in your heart, let it grow unencumbered, and watch what God does. Authentic faith changes everything, and the evidence of it is a righteous life, not because of what I've done, but because what I've invited in. The word of truth that is planted in my life and can save me. The second evidence of faith is its relevance to our life. It is the word planted in us. It produces a crop There are two things that can be produced here. One is a crop that is a crop of of, of fruitfulness, but there's another produce possible. Did you see that in verse 21? Human anger does not produce the righteousness that that God desires. But what does produce it? The word of truth produces it. What does that righteousness look like? We'll see that as we continue on through this book. But I want to get to that phrase, which can save you. Literally, it means save your soul. And James' use of the word soul here is not the ethereal spirit part of us that can't easily be seen. When James uses the word soul here, he means the whole of our life, every single piece of it. It can save every single piece of your life. Authentic faith, the word the word planted in you can actually save every aspect of your life. This shouldn't be a surprise. The God who made every part of my life wants to save every part of my life. Every single part of it. The spiritual side of it, the emotional side of it, the relational side of it, every single part of it. God wants to save, to restore that, to bring it back to what was intended in the first place. And then we see this example in verses 22 and following. The person of faith acts on what they hear and what they know. The value of scripture and the value of God's word in our life is that it actually would transform our lives. Not that we would simply have head knowledge. The person of faith is like the person who gets up in the morning, sees his face in a mirror, and knows who he is and acts that way as he walks out of, the, out of, out of his house. Rather than who looks in the mirror and forgets everything they saw and lives a life without any connection between who they are and what they do. Just as a look in a mirror causes me to act based on the look in the mirror, so a look at God's word should cause me to act on the look into God's word. Faith is not merely an intellectual pursuit. We have whole lives. Faith will embrace the whole of our life. The measure of maturity and completion is not a library of knowledge. It's a person willing to act on the knowledge that one has acquired. And and we've seen this over and over again. People who know much about God, 
I mean, they grew up perhaps in Sunday school just like you and me, and they had a library of knowledge in their head. They had it all in there, but it made no difference in their life. You know what happens when you've got a library of knowledge that you don't use for anything in your life? People get bored really fast. And all too often, this is the story of what's happening with young people in, in, in the United States today, is that they thought it was just what you think. And we might have even propagated that in some ways, rather than, no, what does it mean now? How will it apply right when you walk out of here? What will it mean? And so they've got a head full of knowledge that seems irrelevant to them, and they have around them other people with headfuls of knowledge. It seems inconsequential and insignificant. And, and James says, no, no, faith, faith is this. We study God's word, and then we ask, what difference will it make? How will it impact the way that I live? How will it change me? Faith and actions work together. This is why we talk a lot about applying God's word with others over time. Not just study it, but we apply it. We apply God's word and we do it with others because those voices are so helpful for us. We might miss it or not hear that or or realize that there's not, we, don't, we don't understand an issue quite like somebody else might. Apply God's word with others and over time. Over seasons of life, over years and years of time with people that know you, know your story, know your brokenness, know your challenges, know your life, know your hope, know the way God's at work in your life and can notice it and say, no, this is what's true. I've seen you long enough to know that about you. Be able to live that, to apply God's word with others over time. Evidence of faith is the relevance it has in our life. And then third and finally, evidence of faith is its relevant to the, relevance to the lives of others as well. Clearly, this is what he's talking about here in verse 27 as well. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is a faith in verse 26 that is not worthless. It saves us. And James talks about the benefit to us. It actually keeps us from being polluted in the world. Isn't that interesting? Do you see what James is saying here? That engagement in the needs of the world rather than insulation from the world is the means of not being polluted by the world. Engagement in the needs of the world rather than insulation from the world is the means of not being polluted by the world. Do you see that connection? This was so in contrast to the contemporaries of Jesus who saw holiness and purity as an ultimate thing to pursue and therefore they decided to be separate from the world. If I'm going to be holy and, and pure, I have to make sure I stay separated from the world. Any of you are parents? Isn't that our natural tendency with our kids? If they're going to be holy and pure, we have to keep them away from the world and the challenges of the world and the difficulties and the mess of the world. It's going to pollute them. James is actually saying it's the thing that keeps them from being polluted. Isn't that amazing? Engagement in the needs of the world rather than insulation from them is the means 
of not being polluted. Disengagement from the world makes us dirty, messes our life up, makes us think in ways that are incongruent with the character of God and the character of the world. To be disengaged, that's what that does. Jesus said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Boom, they're connected with each other. God defends the cause of the powerless and the fatherless and the widows. In Deuteronomy 18, he's described as one who loves the aliens and gives them food and clothing, who connects with people on the fringes, people who are in vulnerable positions. In Isaiah 1, we're commanded to do the same, to seek justice and to encourage the oppressed. And then there's this remarkable passage in Jeremiah 22 where it says this, did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. God actually says that if you're going to know me and the purity of knowledge of who I am and what matters to me, you will go places with me that matter to me. Is that not what it means to know me, he says, to be among those who need him most? Being like God helps us to know God. By the way, as we do that, lest we think that these vulnerable people are enduring and grateful, many times they're not. They're hurt and wounded and messy. That's what happens in life. So if we have any romantic notions and I'm going to jump in and care for vulnerable people and they're just going to be so sweet and so appreciative, uh, that's not what we're invited into here. We're invited into relationships that will bring challenges with them. You jump into those situations and guess what? They will bring with them trials. And what's the benefit of trials? Trials lead to an invitation into perseverance. And when perseverance has done its work, we are mature and complete. Do you see the way this works? We actually get to where we want to be by engaging in the places where God already is. And then we discover that we grow up into Christ-likeness as well. So what does it look like? There are many options for it. There are people in crisis and need all around us. It means just simply to walk into their lives and be connected with them. In the Empower KC conference yesterday, somebody asked the question, you know, what do we do if I've actually seen one of our neighbor kids and it looks like he's just actually been set up for this. He's just, he thinks himself worthless and insignificant and, and, and he's, he's clinging to people who are giving him messages of, of hope that are going to manipulate him. You can just see it. What do we do? You know, and my sense is, well, just give me a phone number. I can call somebody and they can fix it. And the person who responded said, here's what we do. We invite them into our lives. Bring them over and sit on the porch with them. Hear their story. Speak gospel into their lives. You see, what God calls us into in our lives is not a phone number that we call to make sure somebody else takes care of it. It's actually an invitation into people's lives where we get to represent the character of the gospel for them. And here's the remarkable thing. When we do that, 
when we do that, we get to know God in ways we never would have before. I've got a car. It's not a, 67, not a 65 Shelby Mustang. It is a little bit cheaper than that one. It's a 67 Camaro convertible SS, and it really isn't even an SS. It's just a pretend. It's just a wannabe. We just took a basic Camaro convertible, and we just put a whole bunch of SS parts on it so it looked really cool. Uh, my dad and I bought it when I was about 15 years old, and we bought it as this messed up car, and we rebuilt it together. But the story actually started before that. Uh, I had, I had uh, a pretty poor relationship with my dad. And uh, I was a young guy and uh, just lamenting uh, my relationship with my dad and my frustration with him. And it was my night to do the dishes with my mom. And we were sitting there in front of the sink and I still have the picture in my mind. And I was just telling my mom how frustrated it was for me in my relationship with my dad. My, I love to read books. He loved to fix things. He loved uh, race tracks with the mud and the dirt and the noise. And I loved a great book. I would, I would mow the lawn reading a book at the same time. Drove my dad crazy. And it was just like we were just these, this way. And my, my mom said to me, Mark, if you would decide to take an interest in the stuff your dad was interested in, he says, the two of you would be just like that. And I decided, I'm going to try that. So I started going to loud, dirty, dirt track races. And I dreamed with my dad about buying a car whose engine needed to be rebuilt. And we rebuilt it together. And it happened. I took an interest in the stuff that mattered to my dad, and we became just like that. James is wanting the same thing for us. If we take an interest in the stuff that matters to our father, we will find us just like that in relationship with one another. So dads, before you start thinking about a way to apply this with a car or whatever it might be at home, think about it, what it means to apply it to your dad in heaven. To take an interest in the things that matter to our father. And we'll find ourselves in relationship with our father in heaven just like that. That 67 Camaro, it's just kind of a pretend SS. But I don't care what it looks like. That represents to me a relationship with my dad that is more precious than anything else. God wants you and I to go into the world, care about the things he cares about in such a way that we not only help fulfill his purposes, but our hearts are drawn to him. And the people around us will see something described as faith that looks more authentic than anything they would have ever imagined. So what are the takeaways? I want to suggest two. One of them is embedded. Actually, they're both embedded in the five questions that we set this whole series up. And the one has to do with sins. What are the besetting sins in your life? What are the things that you tend towards that Satan uses to mess you up and trip you up in your pursuit of living the righteous life that God desires and you desire. We all have them. Satan is interested in your life 
And none of us are without vulnerabilities that Satan wants to expose and use. So the best thing for us to do is to identify them and recognize that God's desire isn't that I squelch it, but that I ask him to eliminate it and have conversations with people in my life that will help me along the way with those impulses and desires that will mess up my life. What are they? What's the list right now? And then the second aspect of this is to be able to ask the question, and who are the people uh, whose pain grips God's heart, and how can I get there right now in their life in such a way that I can be God's arms in their life, but also worship God in the midst of what I'm doing. Would you pray with me, please? God, we thank you for your love for us and your invitation for us to walk into a life that is characterized by faith, that it feels authentic to us and is seen as authentic by others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.